I'm Laura Herberg, and this is Curiosity, where listeners ask questions about Detroit and the region. Motown singer Tammy Terrell was in Detroit when she belted the words, Ain't No Mountain High. She might as well have been talking about our vertically challenged city. Detroit is pretty flat. We have to build sledding hills for toddlers. And yet, we received this question from Redford resident Scott Barnett. What is the highest point in Detroit? Kobe Levin, a science reporter from Outlier Media, takes it from here. Scott Barnett, a math instructor at Henry Ford College, was raised in northwest Detroit. His mom drove him to school every day, always by the same route. He still remembers the turns and the main landmark, an incongruous hill on Curtis Street. And we'd go up it on the way home from school, and um, it was so different, the fact that everything around it is so flat. So yeah, I just always wondered about it, something out of the ordinary. Years later, Scott came across an article that claimed the hill on Curtis Street was the highest point in Detroit. This was big neighborhood news. He told his childhood friends about it. But the article is wrong, I think. In this episode, we're on the hunt for the highest natural point in a city that isn't quite as flat as it seems. Search online for Detroit High Point, and you might wind up on the phone with a retired high school teacher from Missouri named Dennis Stewart. Stewart is kind of a big name in elevation, a former Guinness World Record holder who once summited the high points of the 48 contiguous states in a single month. In 2017, he was driving through Detroit and decided to check out the local high point, which is how he ended up on a skeptical Detroiter's doorstep, trying to explain why he wanted a selfie in their backyard. I had to talk to him for a while to, so they could see that I was legitimate, that I wasn't some guy trying to get in their home and <laughs> scope them out. So, uh, but after they felt comfortable with me, then they they were, you know, they were friendly and let me go in their backyard and stand there and take my picture. I want to confirm that the spot Stewart visited is Detroit's true peak. So I call up Mike Wolchinski, a retired geologist. He knows the high point offhand. It's on 8 Mile um, on the west side, just around where the old WWJ, uh, WJR, whatever it was, radio station used to be. But that's not the spot Stewart summited. I tell Wilchinski he might be wrong, and he gets kind of excited and starts emailing me maps. Turns out there are at least two possible peak Detroits, one near 8 Mile Road and one near 6 Mile, not far from Scott's childhood neighborhood. This makes sense to Wilchinski. Toward the end of the last ice age, maybe 10,000 years ago, melting glaciers left behind a layer of rock and soil in the northern half of Detroit. The city may look flat, but it's on a slight slope, rising almost 100 feet between the river and 8 Mile. Wilczynski and I agree to find the real Detroit high point for ourselves. He promises to bring some equipment to take measurements. Turns out he means an iPhone app, which he tests out before we get started. I've been looking at, like, GPS, so let's, let's, let's look at it right here. <laughs> Here's what it is right now. I'm at 670.39 feet, but that's plus or minus 32 feet. Oh, I'm sorry. Take that back. Uh, 19 feet. I can't say I'm filled with confidence as we head to the first possible peak. But as we approach the coordinates Stuart visited, we look down this very normal Detroit street, neat brick bungalows, a park with a basketball court, and we see it. Look at That's the spot. And we can see a rise um, in the street. Looks like several feet going to the north. And that's higher than here. And according to a topographic map, it should be around this park area. And that looks like it's it right there. At the top, Wilczynski's phone tells us we're at 675 feet above sea level, plus or minus 18 feet. We can see for blocks. 
Wolchinsky thinks this hill began as a beach. Detroit was underwater 14,000 years ago, he explains. Lake St. Clair and Lake Erie were one mega lake. Every time the water receded, exposing the future city, it left behind a shoreline, a ridge of sand and rock. People living here may not realize it, but they've got beachfront property. As we stand there, a neighbor steps out onto his driveway. Wolchinsky tries to flag him down, but he's not inclined to chat. And he's definitely not impressed by our big news. You live at the highest elevation in the city of Detroit. You're about 100 feet above the Detroit River here. Okay, useless information. It, it don't put money in my pocket. No, it doesn't. I think we're inching closer to the truth here. But the quest continues. We hop back in the car to investigate the other high point. So remember how the number to beat is 675 plus or minus 18 feet? The new location's next to a school, and it's much flatter, no hill in sight. But our GPS says 678. This is three foot higher, plus or minus 28 feet. That's a larger margin of error, isn't it? He nods. No! So it's either that spot or this spot. As Wolchinski puts it, we're in a bit of a quandary. How do you determine the highest spot in an area like Detroit where it's relatively flat? You know, you'd have to go find a benchmark and actually run out a line from that. A surveyor would have to run out from that or use you know, much more accurate GPS. But what's, what we have available is, is just the average person, is, is the technology's not there. If anyone from the US Military Surveying Service is listening to this. Yeah, yeah. Give us a call. So, to answer Scott's question, Detroit has two high points, at least, we think. And neither one is his childhood hill. Scott says he's fine with that. I still love Detroit. And uh, happy to learn more about it. Apparently, my, my memory uh, may not be correct of the significance of that, uh, that one hill. That's okay. I live on the east side of Detroit, not far from the river. As I head to my house, thinking about useless information, a new thought pops into my head. From here to home, it's all downhill. That was Outlier Media science reporter Kobe Levin. His story was brought to you as part of a collaboration with Outlier Media, which is a nonprofit newsroom designed to center and respond to Detroiters' needs. Coming up, there's a basement in Detroit packed with geological marvels. I'm going to get a tour after this short break. So all this talk about melting glaciers and ancient beaches in Detroit got me thinking about geology in the city. And that led me to a room in the basement of Old Main at Wayne State University. All right. Awesome. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you. Oh, this wow. Is, uh, Hello. Hi. So, I'm standing inside the David J. Lowry Geological Mineral Museum. And while most of the rocks and gems in here are from places far beyond Detroit, this museum is its own kind of Detroit curiosity. There are a couple hundred pieces of minerals and related paraphernalia on display. And I've got four people to show me around. Because you know what? You tell an environmental science and geology department that you're sending a public radio reporter to tour their mineral museum, and they show up. And I'm not going to fault them for that. So here to show me around are... David Lowry. He's a former geology teacher at Wayne State and is curator emeritus of the museum. 
not to mention its namesake. And then there's... Mark Baskaran. He's chair of the department. We also have David Doherty. I'm not sure what my title is now. I think I'm a mentor or something like that. He's a geologist who got his master's from Wayne State in the 70s and has also been an adjunct lecturer. And I'm John Niedermeller. He's the academic services officer for the department. I asked these guys to show me some of their favorite items in the museum. Lowry takes me over to a flat rock roughly the size of an apple that looks like a milk-colored piece of glass with markings on it. And we refer to this as scenic agate. And in this case, it shows, well, you have to use your imagination a little bit. It shows a mountain in the background, kind of meadows and forest. And I like to... When kids come in to visit, I like to say, maybe you watch it long enough, you'll see a deer come walking out of the woods. Hadn't happened yet, but I like to tell them that. It really is a beautiful little scene. I can see it so easily, the, the top of the mountain there, and you can see the pine trees. But it's, it's really, just to clarify, nothing's painted on here. It's, this is just a naturally occurring scene in this agate, right? That's correct. Next, Boscarin takes me over to a display of about 10 meteorites and hands me a metallic one that looks like it's partially polished. Oh my goodness. You see that? It's, oh wow, it's about the size of my palm and it's, it feels as heavy as a bowling ball, yeah, I would say. Right, right, right. <laughs> this is predominantly iron, maybe 70% iron. This polishing that it comes because it has undergone melting when it came from the atmosphere, from the asteroid belt. Major fraction of the meteorites that we have, they are derived from the asteroid belt. A small fraction is from Moon and some from Mars. Boskarin says when the Earth was formed, it spent its first 100 million years cooling. The Earth is 4.56 billion years, but we don't have a rock that goes back to 4.56 billion years. But we have meteorites that go back to that uh, age. So it gives us to... Uh, get an idea on the age of our solar system. Next up, Doherty takes me over to a mostly flat, cream-colored stone that some crystals are fused to. It's as big as a laptop and looks like a piece of modern art. This is um, showing uh, the major minerals that you see in what we call a pegmatite. And these are rocks where igneous rocks that, that form from a molten state and they're allowed to cool in such a way that large, very large crystals were able to grow. And uh, this is a nice example of that. Um, that thing's pretty heavy, as you can tell. Yeah, I just want to say to me, and this is probably going to hurt your ears, but to me it looks like a couple slabs of some kind of countertop that then has crystals growing out of the middle of it. That's the kind of countertop I want. Same here. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'd flatten it out. I just put my glass in between those crystals there. It'd be beautiful. Yeah, it would be. Niedermiller takes me over to a case that looks kind of like a very nice vending machine filled with rocks. He pulls a curtain around us and turns off the lights. If you push a little button, you will see it go through a cycle. The whole thing is called luminescence, but right now you're seeing long wave, which is about 368 nanometers, which is your typical black light. And when you say nanometers, you're talking about wave light? Lengths. Yes. Uh, okay. Light. Wavelength of life. Like it's electromagnetic spectrum, and in the part that we can see, there's short wave and long wave. So certain things glow underneath that. And then it's going to go to short wave in a second, which is 
254 nanometers and many more definitely glow. And oh this gosh. process now is called, what's going on is you got fluorescence. So when it glows, it's fluorescing. I, the whole I, thing is called luminescence, but it's fluorescing right now. I got to explain for our listeners because, okay, when we were in phase one, these these rocks so in this display this case, all fluorescing they, right they started to show some um, hidden colors. And then when we went to phase two, I mean, this is like... It Short wave. This is like we're looking at a poster under a black mm -hmm. light. These yep. are some psychedelic and colors here. See how they're still glowing? Yeah, now even though the, the light went off, they're still glowing. Phosphorescence. So when the light goes off. So this case, we put together with many minerals that glow in the dark, as we could call them. So how, how on earth is this light making these minerals glow? It's a physics thing, but it's got to do with when the light hits it, whether long wave or short wave, it kicks up the atoms, I guess you call the electrons, to a higher level. And when it comes back down, it gives off photons. And that's what we see as light. So the ones that stay glowing after the light goes off, they just take a longer time for that to come back down so the light stays glowing for a longer period of time afterwards. If you want to see this and other items in person, like a fossil of a baby ichthyosaur, you can check out the Mineral Museum for yourself. It's free and open to the public. The hours are posted online. You've been listening to Curiosity, a production of 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. We're a nonprofit public radio station that runs primarily off donations from listeners like you. I'm Laura Herberg, the executive producer and editor of this show. I want to thank Scott Barnett for asking his question and for Kobe Levin of Outlier Media for answering it. Mastering for this episode was done by Connor Anderson. Our music is by Will Sessions. Thanks to WDET podcast manager David Lyons for production support. WDET's digital team is Dave Kim, Jenny Sherman, and Sophia Joswiak. Curiosity is driven by your questions. If there's something that you're curious about related to Detroit, please ask about it at WDET.org slash curious. And you just might have it answered in a future episode. And one final note, this will be my last episode with Curiosity, hopefully not for forever, but at least for a little bit as I've accepted a new job outside of the station. But I'm leaving the podcast in good hands, so stay tuned for a new host slash executive producer slash editor. And um, I'm not going to say goodbye to my coworkers here because they should already know how much I care about them and how much I'm going to miss them. But... I just want to say that I've enjoyed, sorry guys, I'm a sap. I just want to say that I've enjoyed helping to answer your questions about Detroit so much. And working on Curiosity has truly been a highlight of my career. So thank you all so much for listening and keep those questions coming. For now, farewell. <laughs>